Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. So, so it's important to understand these origins because we're still dealing with some of the same kinds of issues. And we really owe it to ourselves to understand how did these issues bring about a war and what can we do to make these kinds of issues not bring about a war. You know, there's got to be a better way to do it. That's Don Haggist. He's the managing editor of the Journal of the American Revolution. And he's our first guest. I'm Brady Kreitzer. And this is Dispatches. Dispatches is brought to you by West Home Publishing, publisher of the new book, Daniel Morgan, A Revolutionary Life by Albert Louis Zamboni, in stores now. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm thrilled to be here and be a part of Dispatches uh, and the great work done at the Journal of the American Revolution. I am firmly of the opinion that everyone has an interest in history. Maybe they just don't know it yet. Part of the problem of history has been that not everyone has time for it. I appreciate that as a father of three. Not everyone has time to sit down and read an entire book. Not everyone has time to seek out an academic journal article. But everybody has 30 or 40 minutes on their way to work to maybe listen to a podcast. Everybody can listen to a podcast while they're cooking or cleaning or doing their laundry. I say that, by the way, because that's exactly when I listen to it. A lot of the issues faced by history today is not interest in the subject, but accessibility. And that's why I'm so thrilled to be a part of the team here at the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution took that very basic idea. History should be accessible and reliable. And has made really uh, a wonderful and exciting opportunity for thousands of readers around the world. Each week, when you log into the Journal of the American Revolution at www.allthingsliberty.com, you will find new articles featuring the latest scholarship and research from some of the finest historians on the planet. You'll find wonderful editorials and fascinating commentary and even a bit of humor. I speak so glowingly about the Journal of the American Revolution because I read it every day. How does it go? I'm not just a podcaster for the Journal of the American Revolution. I'm a member too. You can get these articles sent directly to your email by signing up for free. Uh, it just really is a great treat to read this work uh, and interact with the writers and historians involved. Each week on Dispatches, we'll focus in on one of the contributors and their work from the Journal of the American Revolution. It could be featuring an upcoming article, or it could be a discussion of a previous article. One of the things I love about the journal is that all of the material that they publish is available online from the moment it's published until, I don't know, the end of time, as far as we're concerned. Every article for years can still be found. 
And there's some really impressive and really important material on there. So we'll dig into the archives. We'll go through some of the, some of the great works of the past and what's coming forward. Each week, you can count on dispatches to be your guide through the latest in scholarship and research in the revolutionary field. That said, it's only fitting that our very first guest is Don Haggist, the managing editor at the Journal of the American Revolution. Uh, Don is a driving force on the site. He's not only the editor who sifts through the materials to make sure that they are uh, worthy of publication, but he's a writer too. Don has written a number of books studying the Revolutionary Era, with a special emphasis on the experience of British soldiers here in the New World. We'll talk in this interview you're about to hear about some of the misconceptions of history, uh, some of the more sensational parts of history, and I think most importantly, what lessons we can still learn. Each week, it's very important for me to break new ground on the show. That's what good historical research does. It's not just telling the same story over and over and over again, uh, but it's reinterpreting it. It's reevaluating it. It's seeking out new meaning. I always say, history is not about finding something new, but looking at something old in a new way. A good friend of mine uh, always tells this story. It's been told before. It's not his story, but it's an important one. Uh, a man goes back to his old college and finds his old college professor. He's excited because his daughter is now going to take the same class he did. And he's shocked to find that the tests haven't changed. He says to his professor, how can you not have changed your exams in 25 years? To which the professor says, you know, it's funny you say that. The questions are all the same. It's the answers that have changed. And that says so much about what we're doing here on Dispatches and at the Journal of the American Revolution. I'm telling you this as a professional historian. You can probably tell I'm not a professional podcaster. I myself have published six books studying the field of empire in North America in the 18th century. And I know of the pitfalls of trying to seek out articles that are difficult to find. That's part of the hunt. It's part of the chase. And that's great. But sometimes those articles should be accessible. I mean, historians write them so people will actually read them. And that's what makes the Journal of the American Revolution so great. The best history in the world, the newest interpretations, the freshest cutting-edge research at your fingertips. Earlier this week, I had the privilege of sitting down with Don Haggist, managing editor of the Journal of the American Revolution, and we talked about all of these issues. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the interview. Don, let's start in the obvious place. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background. I am a mechanical engineer who works for a major medical device manufacturer, and that's what I do professionally. But also, ever since I was in high school, I've had a strong interest in history and had the good fortune to get involved with doing archival research very early on in, in my life and in my history career. And the nice blend there is having been trained as an engineer, I know a lot about, it's really important to me to use data 
or anything that I'm going to try to produce or publish, whether it be an engineering thing or history thing, and to look very carefully at the data and assess the validity of it. So I want anything that I work with in my history work to be very to be based on verifiable data and to be what in the engineering world I would call repeatable so that if anybody has any question about anything I've written, they can go to the footnotes, they can go to the primary sources and say, oh yeah, I see why he wrote that. At what point do you think history went from simply an interest of yours or a hobby to uh, something much greater? Yeah, it's, it's tricky to pin something like that down to a specific moment. I can tell you about a key revelatory moment I had with research, though. Um, I had gotten involved in historical reenacting when I was a teenager, but even before that, growing up, um, I grew up in a house full of books about all different subjects, and I found the things that interested me most were autobiographical accounts by people at war. Particularly, I liked reading accounts by World War II aviators. But the historical reenacting gave me a little push toward the American Revolution. I wanted to learn more about the people there. And of course, as a reenactor, you, you feel like, oh, I know what the people are really feeling, which may or may not be true. But that's what you think when you're a reenactor. So I wanted to learn more on that. And my first job out of college happened to take me living close to Morristown National Historical Park. My first winter out of college had me not really knowing what to do on weekends, living in my own apartment and all that, and being in a new place. But I knew they had this research library there. So I went to the library and walked in the door and sitting out open on the table was a book called British Officers in the American Revolution by Worthington Chauncey Ford. And I was interested in a particular British regiment, and I opened up, and all of a sudden, I have not just oh, a regiment that was here and there, I have names of people, which is really what I makes me fascinated about history, of stories of people. And I said, wow, it's possible to look at the American Revolution not just as campaigns and, and, and battles and big high-level things and a few famous people. I can get down and say, ooh, lieutenants and ensigns in individual regiments, you know, these people that are much more tangible on a personal level than somebody like the commander-in-chief or the president of Congress. You know, I, in my own personal life, I can't relate to people on that level, but I can relate to a junior officer or a private soldier. You know, he could be my neighbor. And so I, had a, I started doing research, I had no idea what a good quality library that was and how much remarkable material they have, but it was sure lucky of me to stumble on it when I did. At this point, you are a well-respected member uh, of the historical community. You've written a number of different books. Uh, could you talk about some of those books and maybe where the inspiration came from? I can talk for a very long time on these things. I don't know how interesting it will be. Um, I first... As somebody who got interested in history by reading about it, somehow I just felt like I would end up writing about it eventually, but I didn't, I didn't have a, a real plan when I was young. Um, I had the good fortune to have a couple of academics as parents, and my mother had done a lot of editing and things. Somehow I just absorbed this, uh, this editing interest and skill. 
Um, I started editing a reenactment publication when I was much younger. The the, the Brigade Dispatch, published by the Journal, uh, published by the Brigade of the American Revolution. So I kind of had some of that in me, and I started recognizing that people needed access to primary source material that was very hard to get. And I thought, well, I should start trying to just get information out there to people who need it and want it. Um, I was very lucky, as I said, to be near good research libraries, and I met a lot of good people who were very quick to share primary source material, you know, military textbooks published in the 18th century and uh, manuscript documents called orderly books that people had painstakingly transcribed or photocopied or however they managed to reproduce it. And I was working with people who circulate these things, but I said, well, to get it out there, things need to be published. So I started my first two books were really just transcriptions of previously published or manuscript primary source material with some annotations here and there, but nothing nothing remarkable. But it grew from there. There's so many times in the modern world where we see historical figures and historical events pulled out of their worlds and brought into ours, largely, quite frankly, uh, for the purpose of fighting our own political battles. What do you think the greatest misconception is about the American Revolutionary period here in the 21st century? This is something I've thought a lot about recently, and I, I kind of get on a soapbox about it. Um, and one of the nice things about being editor of the Journal of the American Revolution is, boy, do I get to see a lot of misconceptions. Um, we often do editorial work and advisory work on things like screenplays for the History Channel and uh, some what, very well-known history books that go out in the popular press. That some, And the drafts of some of these things, that some of the misconceptions are quite remarkable. Um, but the two key ones that I think, there's two really important ones that I think Americans really need to understand today about the American Revolution. The first one, and this goes back to the origins of the war, is that the war was, or the conflict, I should say, because the rebellion came before the war began. Um, but the rebellion was not caused by high taxes. The rebellion was brought on not by taxation, but by representation. And people forget that a lot. I see all the time, oh, the king was trying to line his pockets by charging high taxes and this and that. And, uh, and that wasn't the issue. The colonists were already paying taxes, but they were paying taxes to their own colonial governments. And each colony had a charter or some other document by which it was founded because they were all British colonies. And each colony had a colonial government that was authorized by the British government and each one had some kind of clause that said, in um, paraphrasing here, that the colonial government can charge its own taxes and administer certain local affairs by itself. And in 1765, the British government, for very good reasons at the time, decided that they wanted to start levying taxes directly on the colonists. And the colonists felt that that's 
illegal. That's not legal based on our charters and our other founding documents, depending which colony it was. The Parliament doesn't have the right to charge taxes. And the Parliament, also looking at the very same laws, but interpreting them differently, said, yes, we do have the right to uh, charge these taxes. So it wasn't the taxation, it was the representation that was is the issue. And Americans need to recognize that this was a source of conflict because we still have issues in the way our own government is set up with the, um, I'll call it a conflict, it doesn't have to be a conflict, but the issues surrounding local government versus national government. You know, we're a republic and every state can write its own laws, but the nation has its laws too, and which laws take priority? So, so it's important to understand these origins because we're still dealing with some of the same kinds of issues. And we really owe it to ourselves to understand how did these issues bring about a war and what can we do to make these kinds of issues not bring about a war? You know, there's got to be a better way to do it. So that's misconception number one. Misconception number two gets all the way to the end of the war and really the, you know, the American Revolution ends and now the colonies are setting up a federal government trying to figure out this thing that we now call a republic. And there's a sense that a lot of people convey that you know the founding fathers wanted this and the founding fathers wanted that and this sense that there was a great deal of agreement and unification and that there was some guiding set of principles that they all agreed on. And it wasn't such smooth sailing as that. One only need to read about the Constitutional Convention and see there was a lot of bitter, bitter disagreement about how the federal government should be set up, what kind of rights belong to the states, what belonged at the federal level, what were inalienable rights of all the citizens. This wasn't something that everybody felt was obvious and came to agreement on. And the key thing to realize now in a day of a high level of political conflict is that the amazing thing is not that there was so much disagreement, but people found some way to cooperate and move forward in spite of all those disagreements. Not all the compromises were perfect. They had problems that cropped up later on. We all know about those things. But the important thing is, in spite of having bitter, bitter disagreement about a lot of very fundamental issues, they saw that it was more important to find a way to come to some kind of compromise and move forward than it was to simply accentuate the conflict and just stick to the disparate ideas alone. So there's the two misconceptions. <laughs> Don, one of the things I love about your books, uh, particularly The Revolution's Last Men and British Soldiers' American War, is the fact that you can take an individual's experience and really enlighten readers and inform us about broad swaths of history as a whole. Could you talk about how historians use the works of individuals uh, to do something like uh, give us a better understanding of the entire time period? Um, yeah, I can try to do that. And it's tricky because anytime we look at individual experiences of people, the thing that always frustrates me as a historian is I, I find some of my favorite thing to find is an individual person's personal account of experience that he had. And I love that. And 
very often it'll be a deposition or something that's maybe a few paragraphs or a few pages long. And I think, wow, imagine summarizing your own life in a few pages or a few paragraphs. You'd probably leave an awful lot of things out. And that's, that, that's always the historian's annoyance. No matter how much information I have about a person or an event, I know there's an awful lot of things that have been left out. And I can only guess at how to fill them in or, or not fill them in and realize I, all I can do is give an incomplete picture. Um, I think I may have gone in a different direction than you're expecting here, but the the risk and the problem I see with what a lot of historians do and what and where my engineering training and and experience comes into this is every time I look at an individual, I want to put them in context by trying to understand how typical or atypical they were. And of course, every person is this big collection of experiences and events, some of which are very remarkable and distinctive to them, and some of which lots of people have. So I want to know, as an individual, when this person became a corporal in the 43rd Regiment of Foot in Rhode Island in 1778, well, how likely was a British soldier to become a corporal? Did that happen to lots of guys or only a few guys? Did he need special attributes? And I want to get it down to statistical. I want to know whether it's 16% of the soldiers or 19% of the soldiers who might get promoted to a corporal. You know? <laughs> it doesn't always happen that way, does it? Well, we can't always find that kind of information, but when we can find it, we should use it, and we have to be careful about how we use it. Um, the, the, I come across a lot of cases where people will find five or six pieces of data and then start computing percentages and things like that. And it's like, no, you can't use statistics like that. You need big data samples in order to draw broad conclusions. Um, so, so I like to, on the one hand, find a very personal individual accounts, but on the other hand, put them in the context of very large data samples to say, how did this person fit into the big picture? Um, and my big thing is British soldiers, so I don't know, one of the organizationally, how did this guy fit in and how was his career path distinctive? This is interesting. So you've lectured here in the United States, of course, but also overseas in the United Kingdom. Uh, how is this war viewed differently here as opposed to across the pond in Great Britain? Um, I wish I could say I had lectured in the UK enough to really give a good answer to that. Um, there's certainly a difference in the sense of the importance of the war in the two places, which is not to say that either side thinks it's unimportant, but for Americans, this was a foundational thing. Because of this war, our nation was created. Whereas in Great Britain, well, because of this war, we lost some colonies. And guess what? That kind of thing happened in other places, too. It wasn't um, in terms of troops committed and things like that, it wasn't a particularly big war compared to particularly some that came only a few decades later. So there's differences in the understanding of the significance of it. And uh, there's also some differences. You know, Americans tend to like to think of it in very in terms of righteousness, whereas the British don't have 
a need to think of this particular war in terms of in, in those terms. Americans often don't like to recognize it as a rebellion, as a bunch of people rebelling against what was at the time their own government. Um, of course, the British are more likely to see it that way. But I, I think the British are over it, <laughs> sometimes more than the Americans are. You know, in, in this country, I tell people I study British soldiers, and I you'd be surprised how often people say, well, how can we study them? They're an enemy. It's like, well, come on. So my answer to that is imagine it's 200 years in the future and there's an Iraqi historian writing about the conflicts going on in the Middle East today. It's 200 years in the future, he's an Iraqi. How do you want him to represent American soldiers, our sons and daughters and friends and brothers and neighbors fighting now? So, you know, the whole point I want to get is I just want to represent individual people in an accurate way without talking about whether they were right or wrong or, you know, on moral high ground or low ground or any of that. Just say who, who were the people and what did they experience? I'd like to move on, if we could, to talk a little bit about the Journal of the American Revolution. Uh, you're the managing editor right now, but... How did you first become involved with this project? Uh, that's a great question. Um, the journal was founded by a fellow named Todd Anderlich, who lives in Illinois. He's since moved on from it, but he did a masterful job starting the thing. He also did some writing about the American Revolution for a now-defunct magazine that was called, I think, I think it was a print magazine. It may have been called the Journal of the American Revolution or something similar. And, uh, and it had gone out of print because the business model for starting a niche print magazine is just terrible. Um, and he recognized the need for some kind of a magazine, and he recognized that the Internet is the way to do it, which was just a stroke of brilliance. So, so he started it with another fellow named Hugh Harrington, and they, um, they had worked together on a collaborative book project, which I happened to write a couple of little pieces for myself. And after this thing came up, I saw it on the web. I started writing for it. And somewhere along the line, I, I honestly not really sure why they singled me out, but they contacted me and said, you know, we really need a third person in this venture. Would you be willing to do it? And it was a nice choice because for 20 years I had been editing another historical publication, the Brigade Dispatch. I knew my way around editing. I kind of knew my way around history. And I was interested in doing it. So I became involved just because I got a lucky phone call one day. One of the things that I love about the journal is that when I read it, you see the people who write these articles, and they come from all walks of life, you have traditional historians, you have uh, individuals who work in politics, you have individuals who work in engineering, as you've mentioned. Uh, who are some of these contributors to the Journal of the American Revolution, and where do they come from? You know, that's a pretty interesting question, because um, before we did this podcast, we had a brief little exchange about how, geez, we've never really met each other. We've only corresponded about history from time to time. And that's how I know almost all these people with 
every article, they send a little author bio and a little picture, and I never read the bios, and I never look at the pictures. So you say, what kind of people are they? And I read the articles, but I hardly know any of the people in person. So it's hard for me to answer that comprehensively, except to say it's a broad range of people who are genuinely interested in the time period. They're generally interested in trying to get an accurate picture of what was going on, regardless of whether it feels good or suits our conventional wisdom or supports the kind of beliefs we'd like to have about our own history. They just want to tell us tell a story accurately based on real information as well as it can be told. So that's the common thread I know about them all. Don, I could think back to times in my own research when I have spent weeks trying to track down articles or descriptions that were published uh, in some journal or some manuscript a hundred years ago. Uh, Now I can log on to the internet, find many of those sources, and quite frankly, a lot of them at the Journal of the American Revolution. How is a digital journal different than a hard hard copy publication? I mean, that's basically the way we've been doing it for about 150 years. Uh, So how has this changed things for the better? Uh, There's a couple of really tremendous advantages. Um, One is that it's pretty easy to go back and correct mistakes. We try, of course, not to make mistakes, but it's inevitable for two reasons. One is typos happen whether we like it or not. And the other is that inaccuracies happen whether we like it or not. And sometimes an inaccuracy is an oversight or misstatement by an author and you know, as an editor, I know sometimes I can read a sentence and it means something totally different to me than what it means to everybody else. So, so we have to go back and make corrections like that to, to make it make more sense. But the other amazing thing that I learned um, when I, early in my own research, I started reading historical magazines published in the 1800s in the United States that reprinted lots of small, obscure Revolutionary War documents. People had family letters and little short diaries and things would put them in um, to magazines. There was one called the Historical Magazine that published a whole lot of this stuff in the 1860s and 70s. I think it went into the 1880s. And I noticed in reading sequential issues of the magazine, you'd see an article, and then in the next issue, you might see a correction or a letter to the editor or a comment saying, here's more information, or here's different information. Hey, that guy was totally wrong. Here's what really happened. But unless you read issue after issue after issue of a magazine, you lose that. And there's a tendency when you're researching published archival material, just go, okay, here's the issue of the scientific journal or the historical bulletin or whatever it is, and you find the article you need. And you don't think to then look at the next issue and the next issue and the next issue to say, what comments did people have on this? But on the web, all the comments are together with the article. Somebody has a new comment and it gets added in. Now, we moderate our comments to try to filter out all the chitter-chatter and just keep only the substantive comments that say, here's something relevant about this article, for, for good or bad. And then sometimes we'll go back and actually make a correction in the article just to be sure that 
the story is good. So it's the combination of being able to make corrections and also being able to keep the commentary together with the article that makes working on the web a really amazing thing. The Journal of the American Revolution sponsors a book series each year, and some of the titles are really, really impressive. Uh, always new materials. I always learn new things when I read them. What type of project does the Journal of the American Revolution look for uh, as a potential book in its series? Yeah, our books are specialized in a couple of ways. One is they're, um, they're what I call the novellas of history books. An average 300-page book will run about 100,000 words, whereas we look for something that's more like 60,000 words. Um, so we want a, short, a shorter book than usual. We want it to be very concise, and we want it to be very focused, usually on the kinds of events that, are, that don't get the uh, exposure that they deserve. Uh, for example, a recent one that we came out with was George Washington's campaign strategies in 1779, which is a part of the war when many histories look and say, well, nothing up in the Northern Theater around New York really happened that year. But if you look in a more detailed level, you say, well, well, quite a lot of things happened, but it just didn't work out that they resulted in any big major battle. And we always have to remember when we get when we think about experiencing something as it happened, a lot more went on just because nothing memorable resulted from everybody's actions doesn't mean that there weren't a lot of important things happening to try to make memorable things go on. So we look for histories of campaigns in particular that are concise and can be packaged in a nice, in a, in a fairly short format and then we want a lot of personal detail, and we want it based very heavily on primary sources. You're an engineer by day. You're also the managing editor of the Journal of the American Revolution. I know one thing to be true about you, and I don't even have to ask. You're a writer, uh, and writers want to write. So are you working on any side projects right now you'd be willing to talk about? I am doing something here lately. It's funny that you say writers want to write because... I often don't really want to write. I want the writing to have happened, but I'm not very good at actually doing it. But yeah, I'm, I'm working on two projects actively right now. One, I've had the very good fortune that West Home Publishing has asked me or given me to go ahead to do the book I've always wanted to do, the magnum opus, Social History of British Soldiers in the American Revolution. Um, I did a book called British Soldiers, American War that brings together several first-hand accounts by soldiers and did a lot of writing to put those counts, accounts in context, but there was a lot of stuff I couldn't include, partly just to keep the book a reasonable size and partly because the, the primary source accounts that I was featuring only touched on certain things, so I had no contextual way to bring a lot of stuff, other stuff into it. So this book is really going to look very closely about recruitment and the careers and the kind of lives British soldiers led when they were in America during the Revolutionary War. And then after that, <laughs> I'm working up a book that deals with British flank battalions, Grenadier and Light Infantry battalions, and how they were the um, core tactical element in British campaigns throughout the Revolution. They're mentioned in a lot of books 
all books about campaigns talk about them, but none really study them as the entities that they were, how they were organized, and how they operated. Don Haggist, Managing Editor of the Journal of the American Revolution, thank you for joining us. Do you have any parting words for us? Uh, no, keep reading the Journal of the American Revolution, and uh, and remember when you're reading history that it's not always going to reinforce what you've always believed, but at the Journal, we're going to just try to show you what really happened, whether it was good or bad or indifferent. <laughs> the music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.